You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Listen, 80 million people are going to be disappointed. I'm sorry. Here's what I think is going to happen. 136 million people voted in 2016. My guess is between 154 million people and 160 million people are going to vote in this presidential election that's happening now, which is a huge, incredibly huge amount. It's going to be the largest amount ever. It's going to be the largest percentage amount of eligible voters. And guess what? The winner is only going to win by a few percentage points. So that means one candidate's going to get 80 million votes, give or take, and another candidate's going to get 80 million votes, give or take. And we all know how polarizing this has been for everyone. Friend versus friend, family members breaking up, fights every day on on Twitter. So 80 million people are going to be disappointed with what happens, and 80 million people are going to be happy. So I brought on my good friend Amy Warren, author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and we discussed 13 Things Mentally Strong People Do When Their Candidate Loses. And this will help for any bad situation in your life, but it's going to particularly help today, tomorrow, this week, this month, 13 things mentally strong people do when their candidate loses. And all I can say is good luck today. You know, more important than anything is that the United States keeps on going, keeps on having elections. Every single election is the most important election ever. According to the newspapers, let's just hope the best outcomes happen for everybody. Good luck today. Good luck to your candidates. 13 things mentally strong people do when their candidate loses. Here we go. So, Amy Warren, what's your next goal in life? What's a mentally strong person like you want next? Well, I guess I just took over as editor-in-chief at Very Well Mind, which I'm super excited about. So my goal, I guess, is to... Uh, expand my talks about mental strength onto their platform and their website. And um, I have a kid's book coming out next year, so I'm hoping to reach into the kid's market to talk about mental strength more as well. You know, um, when Stephen Covey came out with uh, seven things highly effective kids do or teenagers do, I think that did very well. And I know uh, my wife gave it to her kids at the time, and they read the book. So I would have been a skeptic that self-help would be interesting to kids, but uh, apparently they are. I'm hoping so. I've heard from so many teachers and parents and everybody asking me for the book. And especially we decided to do it before the pandemic. But now that so many kids are working from home and they're not able to get out of the house as much, uh, I'm hearing more and more from people like, oh, what do I do? Help. So 
I'm hoping it will be a good addition to the parenting book. Um, parents are saying, okay, I'm, I'm learning this, I'm applying this, but I want something I can give to my kids because they, maybe they don't listen to parents as much. But if I give them something to read, something to look at, maybe they'll apply it. I have an idea. Maybe um, do a course on Coursera, which goes along with the book because now kids are doing are getting used to this remote learning as our parents. And uh, so both for kids and parents, you know, 13 things, you know, make, make the, make the book a companion book to the course, uh, and the course a companion course to the book. And, you know, it might just be a way to, you know, extra promote and, um, you know, I don't know, feeds off itself. Great idea. I think it's now that kids are, like you say, they're used to doing everything from home anyway. I think it would make sense to do something online like that. So thank you. And what's disappointing you lately? Oh, what's disappointing me? Let's see. Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. I guess. Like, do you ever I, wake up and think like, oh, another shitty day? Of course. I have those days all the time. I guess, you know, if I were to think of something selfishly that's disappointing me is I, I try to run a mile every day and I try to beat my mile time and I can't beat it. I'm getting slower instead of faster. So I'm disappointed about that. But I actually still find some joy in it anyway. <laughs> but but what's good about that is is that you're at least trying and it's and has no there's no buddy in the way of that except you, which is which sounds bad. Right. But but that's actually a good thing. Yeah. I can't blame anyone. I try to <laughs> try to say, oh, you know, it's what I ate today or it's uh, you know, I'm just not feeling it. Or the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. But ultimately I have nobody to blame but myself. <laughs> I want to bring up your original list of 13 mentally strong things. So hold on, I'm, bring, I'm, I'm looking inside on Amazon. I have your book here somewhere, but it, um, so they don't compare themselves to other people. They don't insist on perfection. They don't see vulnerability as a weakness. I'm going to be real, can I be, we're, we're going to get into 13 things or 13 things mentally strong people do when their candidates lose, which is a great idea. And you came up with this idea and I love it. And I love your list. But I kind of want to be honest now that I, you know, I want to, I, I, can I, can I just go down your list of 13, your original list of 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Mm -hmm. And I realize maybe I'm not so mentally strong. <laughs> I thought you were going to go through the list and tell me what all of those things I've already done, but okay. <laughs> so they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. That's chapter one. I, I don't think, I don't think I feel sorry for myself ever, but they don't give away their power, chapter two. I realize I think I do that too much. Do you, do you do that ever? I do, and I still catch myself sometimes, you know, complaining about people, blaming them, like, oh, this person ruined my day. And then I'm like, oh, I wrote that book and I wrote that chapter. It says, no, that person didn't ruin my day. It's my fault, I'm letting them ruin it. Yeah, like I, I find, you know, I had a situation happen the other day where I couldn't tell if I was being wronged or not. You know, because you never know what's going on in the other person's life. You know, like, let's say it's someone on your podcast or someone you're supposed to have a meeting with or some opinion you hear. But I found myself overthinking when about someone when it just totally did not matter. And that was giving away my power a little bit. Yeah, it's easy to do that. And the more you complain about people, you think, well, now not only am I not enjoying the time I spend with them. But if I spend another hour complaining, I'm then giving them one more hour of my life. Yeah, it's like you're renting space in your head to them. Exactly. And you're not getting any money for it. And you're, you're paying them 
to, to, to rent space. It's like uh, negative rent. Right. And it doesn't do them any harm. It doesn't do you any good. So it makes no sense to do it. Yeah. Like they're not even thinking about you. Right. right. Uh, they don't shy away from change. I would say that doesn't apply to me at all. I, I change a lot, but sometimes it's, yeah, no, that doesn't apply to me. They don't focus on things they can't control. I think that's related to giving away their power. Like I can't control other people. So, but that doesn't really bother me. They don't worry about pleasing everyone. I do try to please everyone, I think. I think that's a problem I have. That's a tough one too. When it becomes ingrained and it's hard to start saying no, it's hard to know what your own opinion is. It's hard to face criticism. Yeah, and I get a lot of criticism sometimes. <laughs> and I, that's like a big one. Between that and the don't give, it's also a way of giving, when you're trying to please everyone, you're giving away your power. It's, it's A lot of this is related to chapter two. And it's hard to get off that addiction you know, security and insecurity, I think goes in waves. And then you have different agendas. Like sometimes you think, oh, someone's going to give me an opportunity. So I have to be nice to them. There's no such thing as just be yourself. Like there's lots of versions of ourselves. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause a lot of times people will say, well, I feel bad that I act this way in front of this person and act a little different. And, you know, there's a study where they found out on social media, a lot of people are really stressed out because you don't know how to present yourself which makes sense and people feel guilty about it, but you probably don't talk to your college friends the same way you talk to your grandmother. But if both of them follow you on social media, you have to figure out how do I put myself out there in a way that maybe is pleasing to everybody. And it doesn't necessarily mean you aren't being true to yourself. It just means maybe you're trying to be respectful that grandma's watching or something like that. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, I have the, uh, uh, slightly, like, because I've I've done things in various different subcultures, let's say whether it's investing or self-help or writing or comedy or just friends and family. These are all different constituencies that will like or dislike things I say, sometimes violently like or dislike, depending on how much I'm catering to the agenda of their subculture. Yeah, that's it exactly. And knowing, you know, people know you from different walks of life. And so if somebody knew you when you were a kid, it might be like, really, this is what James does as an adult? Or like, who's taking James's advice on a podcast? I know I have friends from my childhood. They're like, really, Amy? This is what you do now? Yeah. But And then, you know, I have business friends that are like, what? You live on a sailboat? And they find that part of my life to be strange because they don't know me from that from that aspect of my life. Right. And it's, it's impossible to balance that on social media. And yet, for, for content creators, social media, I would say never use social media, but for content creators, social media is part of the business now. You can't avoid right. social media if you, like, like you know, I have a book coming out in February, you're working on books, you know, this, and this is just useful for people to know, the size of an advance in the book industry now is 100% related to two things. One is how well did your last book sell? And two, how big is your social media platform? And, and one could override the other. Like if your last book didn't sell well, but your social media platform has become huge, you'll get a good advance and vice versa. Right. Yeah, it's absolutely related. And to know, okay, when I'm posting on social media, it's not necessarily about fun. It's about creating content that's going to be helpful to my career. Yeah. They don't fear taking calculated risks. I'm good with that. I don't fear that at all. They don't dwell on the past. I used to do that. I don't. I think a big thing for me was when I stopped doing that. Like I used to regret and now I know I've got the thick skin about being able to bounce back. So there I'm okay. Uh, they don't make the same mistakes over and over. 
Um, I, I get better at that. Uh, they don't resent other people's success. I don't at all. They don't give us. They don't give up after the first failure. I don't do that. They don't fear alone time. I actually love alone time. <laughs> they don't feel the world owes them anything. I'm ninety percent there. Sometimes I feel like, hey, I think in general, I'm pretty smart, and I've been working hard for x number of years. So maybe I should be at different points on different things. But you know, I, I've made my choices and whatever. They don't expect immediate results. I'm half okay with that. <laughs> so yeah, so I guess on the scale, I'm okay, but I'm not like, I'm not great. I'm just, I'm like, I'm like a B instead of an A or a B plus. <laughs> you know, I actually, I think a solid B is a good place to be. It's the people that read through that list and say, nope, I don't have any problems with any of these things that I just want to say, yeah, right. Like we all do those things sometimes, I think, if we're completely honest and just taking a look at, well, when do I do these things or... When life is going well, maybe you don't do some of those things, but then what about when you run into a roadblock or what about when you get rejected, then certain things can crop up over time. Yeah, and I think the point of reading a book like yours and rereading it and even just going through this checklist like we did just now, these are useful reminders. It's not an IQ test, it's more like a reminder list. Right. <laughs> this is the things to keep track of when you feel like something's slipping, you know, like I have my own lists like this and it's rare that everything is on all cylinders for me, but I have to remind myself what's not. Yeah. And I think we all get off kilter and things get out of balance and just like you're at daily practice, right? To take a look at, back at that and say, well, what's, what's not going well? What areas do I need to improve on? And the truth is we all have things we can improve on at any given moment. Yeah. All right. So, 13 things mentally strong people do when their candidate loses. First off, that's a great list for many reasons, but what made you think of that exact list? Because we were just brainstorming on what to do a podcast about, and I love this. Well, you know, Very Well Mind just did this survey about online therapy because the pandemic caused so many people to have to turn to online therapy because they couldn't see their therapist in person. So they tried to figure out what are people seeing their therapist about the most? Are they dealing with depression? Are they dealing with anxiety? Well, the number one thing for most areas of the country was uh, political stress. That's what they're talking to their therapists about. They're reaching out and getting help because they're so stressed out about the election. And it wasn't even necessarily the pandemic. It was, okay, what's going to happen with politics, which will then most likely affect uh, the what goes on with the pandemic in some way, shape, or form. But I just thought it was fascinating that people are that stressed out. And obviously, this time around, we probably won't have an answer right away. It may be quite a while before we know who won the election. And by the way, on top of then the normal political stress, uncertainty of any kind causes massive distress. And, you know, a great, I always say the in the short term, the stock market is like a psychological barometer of the planet. And it's measuring, it's not measuring the economy, it's measuring mass uncertainty. So uh, uh, if w between the elect in 2000, between the time of the election and January 1st, when it was still kind of undecided, the stock market fell by 8.4%, which now seemed that could be like a day's jo job in, in pandemic world. But uh, that was a, a huge amount then. Right. And I think that this could drag on. And then I know so many people are just excited to get out of 2020. But of course, when the calendar rolls over to January 1st, the pandemic's not going away. We might not even know who won the election by then, or 
there's still going to be a lot of uncertainties. I think people are going to be really disappointed when we figure out this is dragging on longer and longer. Well, let me ask you this. Like, I wrote an article, like, I've never voted for in a presidential election in my life. And mostly because I've been lazy. Um, <laughs> but But now there's another reason, which is that I consider, and maybe this is, wrong to consider it this way, but I consider being a podcaster and a, a writer to be, you know, there's a, you know, I, I have a message that I like to express, which has nothing to do with politics. It's like this choose yourself idea and, and helping people and helping people interpret complicated data and complicated ideas and making them, you know, comprehensible and useful to, to people's lives. And I feel that requires no bias and if I even if I vote and don't tell anyone who I'm voting for, I automatically there's cognitive bias in my brain, and people will sense it because people are smart. And uh, and I like to have people ranging from Andrew Yang on my podcast to libertarians to Republicans to whatever. Like I've had Sonia Sotomayor, Supreme Court liberal, Supreme Court justice, and if I get any you know Barrett, I would have her on my podcast. And I think you really need to be respectfully neutral to do that for me. I think that, I think that, and a, I get a lot of negative reaction to that. Like, Oh, you know, don't think you're so important, blah, 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 which I don't, but I see his point. It's angry, but people say people get are so upset about this podcast that there's nothing that is more important to them than everybody should be the one, you know, one out of 160 million votes cast. And by the way, also vote on the same side as them, whether it's Trump or Biden. Yeah, I think there's different schools of thought, right? Some people use their podcast as a political platform uh, to try to persuade people to try to get them on their side. And they should be biased then. Mm -hmm. Like, that's their thing. And that's part of the echo chamber. We choose our echo chambers too. Right. And then I think other people have just taken the side of saying, I'm not I'm not going to alienate 50% of people or I'm not going to pick one side or the other. And that's okay too. And maybe it's a you decide to be more like a news outlet that's going to give people different perspective and say, it's okay to talk to all these people. They're still interesting people. Obviously, right now we're so polarized that for many people, they don't want to hear from the, anybody from the other side because they think that person's opinion isn't worth valuing, even if you're not talking about politics. Yeah. And like, I um, kind of to keep track of my cognitive biases in this, I, I bet on elections. And so this way you try to eliminate as many cognitive biases as possible because you have money on the line. And I don't bet a lot as this is just for this purpose. And also it, if having skin in the game forces me to do a little bit more research. And you're right. Like basically 80 million people, give or take 2%, are going to vote on one side. And 80 million people, give or take 2%, are going to vote on the other side. And yet the comments to my why I'm not going to vote article, a bunch of people were saying, well, there's a clear choice, so you know who to vote for. <laughs> but the problem is half of those people were saying Trump was the clear choice. Half of the people were saying Biden, like literally it was half and half on those those types of comments. And so it's not a clear choice then. So, so I could see the cognitive bias happening. That's fascinating, isn't it? That, and, you know, of course, everybody wants you to vote as long as you're voting on their side, right? <laughs> Right. Like I said, well, I said to one person, what if I vote for Kanye? And that person said, then you don't have a voice. Then you don't have a right to a voice if you vote for Kanye, which doesn't make any sense because what if my voice is anybody should be able to run for president and I'm in favor of that instead of having deeply entrenched, you know, two different crime families running for president each time. But, uh, you know, the other, the other issue is a lot of times they say, hey, who do you think is going to win? And some people say Trump, some people say Biden. 
Well, I've never seen a Trump supporter say Biden's going to win. And I've never seen a Biden supporter say Trump's going to win. So how is it that that's mutually exclusive? Who do you want to win? Who do you think is going to win? Should not have any correlation to each other. And yet it seems to have 100 percent correlation. So, again, it's clear that people are have cognitive bias. And if I ask the question, well, how are you answering this? And at the same time, dealing with your cognitive biases so that, you know, you're making a, a thoughtful answer. And everybody says, well, I don't have a cognitive bias about it, which maybe they don't in individually, but somebody does if, if there's a hundred percent correlation on things that should have no correlation. Right. And that's, you know, so emotionally charged. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I am willing to talk about this subject on your show. I wouldn't talk about it on every show because people, if they think that I'm aligned with one side or the other, then anything I talk about mental strength, they're going to throw out the window because they're going to say, well, if my candidate had won, then I wouldn't have to do X, Y, and Z because people are just so angry and frustrated and uncertain and anxious right now. Yeah. And there's nothing you could say to anybody. Like if you say, well, tell me how will Biden change your life? How will Trump change your life? How will Kanye change your life if he's president? How will Joe Jorgensen change your, what will happen in your life if the Libertarian or the Green Party becomes president? And they'll say, it's not about that. It's about racism or kids. In, so I guess you like kids in cages. And I'm like, why do you think I'm, it sounds like you think I'm for Trump then. <laughs> And they'll be like, well, if you don't vote, that's the same as a vote for the opposite side of me, you know, to your point. Right. And so, but I I'll, I want to read you one more thing and then I want to get to your excellent list and we'll talk about it. Um, so everybody kept saying to me, this is the most important election ever. And so I looked it up on newspapers.com, which is an archive of like every newspaper in existence ever. Here's a quote from the 1890 two election. They're printing a speech. I may talk a great deal, but all that I say shall be founded upon truth and I shall leave nothing unsaid. As all the speakers have told you, this is surely the most important election ever held in America. Blah, blah, blah. So that's 1892. Here's 1880. These men were brought here on the eve of one of the most important elections ever held in this country upon no other pretense than that. Blah, blah. Uh, here's 1940, this is the most important American election since 1860. It is more than that. It's probably the most important election ever held anywhere in the world under free and unrestricted suffrage. The outcome of this election may well determine the conditions of human life for the rest of this century. Here's 1832. To the Jackson electors of the county, on the eve of the most important election ever held in this state. Here's 1844. This meeting is assembled at the commencement of a political campaign, which will determinate in one of the most important elections ever held in our country and on and on. It's every single election, basically. Right. When is anybody ever going to say, well, this year really doesn't matter? No, we're always going to say it's the most important one ever. And obviously because of the pandemic and everything going on this year, people are really buying into that notion that this is going to be life altering. It's going to be the most important decision anybody's ever had in an election and it's going to completely change what happens to us next year. Yeah. And I asked people to tell me three things that will change for good and three things that will change for bad for either candidate. And nobody can, nobody can answer that question. So that's the other thing too. So 13 things mentally strong people do when their candidate loses. And your first one is Accept it. So a mentally strong person is going to wake up, let's say November 4th, hopefully, hear who won. And no matter who won, good or bad for them, they have to accept it. 
Yeah, I think people get confused about what acceptance means. Sometimes people think accepting it means that you're okay with it, and that doesn't have to be the case. Just accept that it happened. And the difference is you can say, I wish that my candidate had won, obviously, because you're going to be disappointed. But sometimes we sit around and we think, oh, that shouldn't have happened. This isn't fair. When you start digging in your heels and thinking you know, life should be different, more people should have voted, that's you'll just stay stuck. So just accepting, okay, it is what it is. This amount of people voted or this percentage of people voted and people didn't vote for the candidate I wanted and that's okay. Accepting it doesn't mean you have to be happy about it. It just means accept that it happened. How do you do that if you're so upset? I think just catching those thoughts when you're thinking, oh, this shouldn't have happened. This isn't right. Just reminding yourself, well, maybe it isn't right, but it's going to happen sometimes if let's say, whatever the voter turnout is, a certain percentage of people and the way the Electoral College works as of right now, this is it. This is how how it turned out. And just maybe even just repeating that, developing something in your head to say, you know, this is, this is what happened rather than what you wish would have happened or what should have happened or shouldn't have happened. Just catch yourself with all of those kinds of thoughts and replace it with something more productive. Right, so so catching with all those thoughts is kind of like a, a, a meditation type of approach, right? So you notice, mm-hmm. you notice what you're noticing, sort of meditation. And then I would add a little bit like, think of like whatever I'm upset about something, let's say I lose money someday on something or something happens that's upsetting. I always try to do something where I'm gonna get kind of a positive effect. It might be helping people, it might be you know pursuing another project that I'm working on as opposed to the project that seems to be stalling. Or like if I'm writing a book and I have writer's block, okay, let's write a story about something else and forget the book for a second or work on a business idea or a podcast idea or, or, or whatever. So sometimes maybe if you, if you can't accept it, do something. So like in 2016, I had a, a good friend who was so upset, he tweeted that uh, I'm gonna stop my podcast. And I wrote to him and I said, I get it, you're upset. Sorry about that. But what is a better world? A world where... Trump is president, clearly you don't like Trump, world where Trump is president and and you no longer have your podcast or a world where Trump is president that does have your podcast in it. And so he restarted his podcast. I take full 100% credit for it. Yeah, so you have to kind of like think these things rationally through. Yeah, and you're touching on some points that I'll get to in a second about what you're actually gonna do. But to start out just thinking and think, okay, this is what happened. And yeah, you have choices. You can dig in your heels and throw a pity party or say this isn't fair I wish it would have been different but it just stalls you it's no it doesn't do anybody any good especially you yeah um all right number two mentally strong people when their candidate loses and this is I guess yeah I we, we were jumping ahead name your feelings right there are tons of scientific studies that say if you just label how you're feeling it takes a lot of the sting out of it so if you say I'm disappointed I'm angry I'm sad scared, whatever it is, just putting a label to those emotions reduces the intensity of them. You start to feel better almost instantly. Our brains get really confused about our, the uncertainty and when we have all these emotions sort of swirling around. And so when you put a name to them, it kind of like helps your brain organize things, make a little bit more sense of maybe why your heart's beating a little faster or why your blood pressure has risen a little bit. And so it's a really simple, easy thing. And of course, our emotions are messy. So you might have six different emotions at once, but just putting a name to them can help you calm down a little bit and feel a little bit better. And I guess you can explore further. Like if you say, oh, I'm feeling afraid, you can ask yourself, what are you afraid of? If you think you're feeling anger, you can start to explore 
who are you angry at and why? And is this important? Is this going to make your life better being angry? Like, so you can, you can start to kind of dissect even a little further once you start naming what the emotions are. But I think it's like, it's like you said, also it's, it's related to, to accepting it by also being, it helps to notice it. If you're angry about it, then obviously you're not accepting it. So it helps to know it go, works well with number one too. Yeah, absolutely. And we're so used to, you know, we don't really spend any time talking about feelings. So it takes a minute sometimes to take a break and say, wait, what am I feeling right now? But once you do it, uh, you know, you just you start to already feel a little bit better just saying, okay, I am angry. I am disappointed. Okay. Uh, look at the facts. Just one of the things you just did, just by bringing up the newspapers and saying, oh, okay, the facts are every year for the last 100 years, we've said this was going to be the most important election ever. Just really taking a step back. And of course, when we look at the facts, we tend to just go to our usual media sources, which tend to just reinforce the beliefs that we already have. But sometimes to take a step back and say, well, what are the facts? What are the chances that this candidate is actually going to ruin my life next year? Maybe you have to go to different media outlets, maybe ask other people's questions about it, but to just be more aware that your predictions probably aren't as true as you think they are. And of course, you have to be open to that, though. That's tough. It's tough to say, I'm going to look at somebody else's opinion who isn't in line with mine, or I'm going to watch a different news outlet than I'm used to watching. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting because in the beginning part of the pandemic, I sort of felt everybody on my Facebook feed had suddenly turned into an epidemiologist. And then with, you know, the economic lockdown, suddenly everybody was an economist, like, oh, we could survive this as long as, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there's, you know, Black Lives Matter and everybody became like an expert pundit on systemic racism. And then, you know, what are what are the latest things? I Or now it's this election, everyone's a, an election pundit and seems to know exactly, well, higher taxes and income inequality, and we're going to have fascism and racism. I always ask people, what do you think, what is the definition of fascism? And everybody gives me a completely different answer, sometimes exact opposite answers. So yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, actually determine if things you're saying or reading are factual is important. Um, Argue the opposite when you think of doom and gloom. So this is, when you say this, argue the opposite, this is like Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's, you know, co-billionaire head of Berkshire Hathaway. He always says, invert your argument. So if you feel strongly about something, make sure you can argue it the opposite side even better than anyone arguing with you. That's just it. And so let's say you're really worried. You think, oh, I'm definitely going to lose my health insurance next year. Argue the opposite. What are the chances that maybe you won't lose your health insurance? Or if you think the economy is going to go downhill, argue the opposite. What are the chances that the economy is going to be fine or that it might bounce back or that maybe you'll be doing better than usual? And that's not to say that you're going to then think, oh, everything's going to be wonderful and you're going to be looking at things from a really overly positive lens. It's just to help you see that the one doom and gloom prediction that you have it's just one possible outcome. There's many different things that could happen, but when you start to open your eyes to other possibilities, it'll help you see that the negative predictions you have aren't necessarily going to happen. Yeah, like, and and you know, it's also helpful to think a lot of things people talk about when they say, oh, the world's over or the country's gonna go to shit or whatever. A lot of these things are abstractions. So your life might not change at all. Some lives will be worse, some lives will be better. And you're kind of saying it's going to be gloom if 
more lives than expected will be worse. And it's selfish to just care about your yourself, which is, I, I, I don't a hundred percent agree. You have to care about yourself in order to help others, but people should realize when they're abstracting. So for instance, if you think the economy is going to be horrible, whether it is or isn't, that might just mean 20% of people will be somewhat worse off than they were. But you look at depressions and recessions, you know, anything from like IBM and Hewlett Packard to, to Apple computer and, and Microsoft were all started in depressions and recessions and so on. So it's not, even a bad economy is not bad for most people. And you could feel like you need to take responsibility for every problem in the world, but it's hard to do that when you have family and kids and friends and community. There's a lot of, you have a big circle of things you have to care about just by default, which, you know, it's hard to also care about your family. You know, if you have five kids and thousand neighbors and a community and you want to clean up your community, it's also hard to care just as much about the temperature of the planet. I'm not saying don't care about it, but it's hard to care equally to that. And so you can't care about everything is what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's definitely true. And to be on the lookout for those uh, blanket thoughts about, oh, everything's going to be awful, horrible. Nobody's going to survive. And just remind yourself, of, oh, okay, yeah, maybe it'll be tough for some people, but here's what we can do about it. And then figure that out and to know that, yeah, good things could come out of this. And I'm not saying you always have to look for the silver lining and say, yeah, things are great. Things are going to happen. But to know that just because things are different, it's not necessarily going to be worse. Yeah. And also it's just hard to predict. Like you, like you were saying, very, it turns out very few people can predict anything. So I was talking to someone the other day who showed me headlines the day after the election about all the hundreds of ways, you know, Hillary made mistakes and blah, blah, blah. And then headlines from the day before the election where the same person was saying, here are all the positive ways, you know, Hillary has guaranteed this election. And, and then later, when later confronted, the writers were like, oh, we knew all along Trump was going to win. So there's just, you know, you, you, nobody knows, or I should say nobody knows anything, but people know very little. Right. So, uh, this one's really important. And this, this one's very tactical. This next one, number five, limit your media. And that goes along with what you're just saying. It's tempting to say, oh, let me, let me see what everybody's saying about this. But nobody knows the future. And so lots of journalists and reporters and news outlets are going to make predictions about how awful things are going to be. And the more you read them, when it sort of reinforces what you already believe to be true, it'll make you feel better for a second because somebody's validating, yeah, I knew this year was going to be awful. But obviously, in the long term, the more you keep reading about that, the worse that you'll feel. So, and tons of news studies will show this. If you watch the six o'clock news at night, even after you shut it off for 20 more minutes, your blood pressure is going to be elevated, your heart rate goes up, your body has this physiological response, and it takes 20 minutes at least to calm down on an average news night. So take during the election, during the pandemic, when the news is probably more doom and gloom than usual, and what if you turn on social media every, let's say, 20 minutes, which a lot of people, it's not unusual to scroll through social media every 20 minutes. You're going to stay in this elevated state of stress possibly all day long because you never give your body a chance to calm down. So I think it's super important to say I'm going to limit the amount of time I spend on media and then to be much more aware of where I'm getting my news from. Yeah, this is so true. Like in 2010, I stopped 
reading all news. Like I didn't read, I didn't go to any news websites. I didn't pick up any newspaper. I didn't watch any news shows. I never hit the home button on Facebook or Twitter. No news. But in 2020, when the lockdown started, I saw that a lot of people were scared. And then I did start looking at the news and I saw the newspapers were grossly misinterpreting a lot of just the basic data. And, you know, since then, I don't have to look in hindsight bias now because I was interpreting it in real time and trying to correct what the news was getting wrong. And for the most part, I can look back at my older podcast and see where I was correct and where I was incorrect. But my point is, I started watching the news again in order to perform this function. And it does make you, I know now there's a visceral difference between the way I was in March through June, as opposed to pre-March, is that I was angrier, more stressed, more depressed, more afraid, everything. Yeah. It was a hundred percent difference. And, I, you know, I'm glad that you can point that out because I think most people don't ever take a break from the news. And I think right now, especially people are glued to it. They're afraid they're going to miss something. They want to know what are people saying about this? But it's one of the worst things you could do for your mental health is to just keep scrolling and to keep reading it and to know how much of this stuff do you actually need to know and where can you get your news from? I think, you know, 30 minutes a day is more than enough. The same stories just get repeated over and over again, or it's the journalists weighing in on the same things over and over. Right. Without any, and as you used to point out in your Instagram lives and in the, when you were decoding the headlines to point out, gosh, here are some horrible predictions that would make us think that the world is coming to an end. And then none of those things happened. Right. And then the problem with me doing that is, is that I got infected with the media virus and started having the, the negative reactions you were just uh, uh, saying in overdrive because I would prepare for these things by looking at nonstop news. So that's so, fascinating. Even as you were picking them apart and you knew that they those headlines weren't true, it was still affecting you. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Almost all the headlines are not true. People forget there are huge, massive, multi-billion dollar agendas of every news outlet, of every news pundit, of every news show, you know, you have, you know, of course, Fox is going to say one thing. MSNBC is going to say another thing. Of course, they're going to try to scare you. That is their job. They're not, their job is not to inform you. Their job is to scare you. And that makes money for them. And that's how they keep their jobs. They're scared about losing their jobs. So they're going to do that. And even on Twitter, when an anonymous person starts screaming something who knows what their agenda is but i can guarantee it it's not just to be anonymous and scream for no reason there's probably agendas there so you got to be careful i got to be careful i have to say airbnb has changed my life i just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically 
you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. This one's really good, too. This is very tactical as well. Stop commiserating. Yeah, sometimes people think we're getting emotional support. When you call your friend and you say, oh, can you believe what's going on in the world? And you spend 30 minutes 
talking about all the doom and gloom or complaining or wishing things were different. And when they've done studies on what happens when we commiserate, which is when you complain to somebody else and they're on the same page as you, obviously you feel worse and it keeps you stuck in an unhealthy state. And then the, the worse you feel, the more doom and gloom thoughts you have. And the more doom and gloom thoughts you have, the more likely you are to just sit around and complain about it. So it's important to distinguish between emotional support and just commiserating. So maybe you call your friend and you say, I'm really worried about what's going on right now. And your friend can say, yeah, so am I. But then you move on and you talk about something else because just rehashing how worried you are, how awful you feel, and how many horrible things are going to happen isn't good for you. And it's awkward when somebody else does it if you have that friend who just wants to call and, you know, the sky is falling kind of conversations to interrupt them. But sometimes it's okay to do that. And you have to remind them and remind yourself, you know, it's not really all that healthy for us to just sit around and talk about how horrible life is right now. Yeah. Like, and I love the phrase, like, can you believe like they get or all of a sudden, can you believe, like someone called me the other day, can you believe like, uh, Hunter Biden is on video doing deals in China, smoking crack and having <laughs> sex with prostitutes. And I'm like, actually, yeah, he's the son of the former vice president of the United States. If it, of course I believe that. It would be more unusual if it was just some random bus driver they caught on video in like the most expensive hotel in Beijing doing all those things. That would I wouldn't believe. This Hunter Biden I could believe. Right, and I think if we've learned anything this year it would be that we shouldn't doubt that anything can happen. Who knows what's going to happen, but that yeah, it's not like corruption in politics is anything new. You could argue for every single president there have been Somebody went to jail for every single in every single presidential term ever. So that's another one of those things that is easy to research and point out. So it's I could definitely believe and look, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't, but I can easily believe people are saying it. Right. So uh and it doesn't change what I think of one way or the other about, you know, you could say that the same thing about Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr. Either way, I'm not gonna it's not gonna affect my opinions on things. Um, focus on what you can control. We were talking about this earlier, but this is really hard. It is hard. And, but when you really think about, well, what can I control right now? You can't control the outcome of the election. You can't control who voted and who didn't. You can't control how politics is going to affect certain social issues or things that you feel strongly about, but you can control how you spend your time, who you spend your time with, how much sleep you try to get, uh, what kind of diet you eat, how much exercise. If you just focus on those things that you can control, you'll feel better. This is another one that there's a lot of research behind. The more we worry about things we can't control, the more anxious we become because we think, I can't fix this. And then the more anxious you become, the more you start thinking about all the things going wrong. So you just interrupt that cycle by saying, okay, what can I control today? And then focus on that, make your mind stay thinking about that thing when your mind wanders over to something that you can't control remind yourself that's not helpful move back to something that you can control yeah and and th this one item is really where i kind of if i feel anxious and like i'm trying to control something i can't control this is where i s step back to what i call my daily practice which i wrote about in, in choose yourself which is like what you just pointed out you know s you know sleep eat move so Sleeping eight hours a day is clearly shown to be a powerful antidepressant. Uh, eating a good diet, you know, I guess like vegetables, fruits, and not eating too much and, you know, eating healthy is also an antidepressant. And exercise is a natural antidepressant. And if you're all, if you're trying to control, I don't know, the outcome of an election that happened the day before, 
be nice to your spouse maybe instead and maybe come up with, be creative, like paint or come up with 10 ideas or something that's going to, you know, 10 ideas for businesses or 10 ideas for something, something positive you could do or people you could help or, you know, like, like I was just saying to you, oh, maybe you should do a course around your next book about 13 things, you know, mentally strong kids don't do, uh, do a companion course with it. That is something where I feel good about having an idea and sharing it with my friend and it probably have more effect on you, whether you do it or not, than whoever your congressman is or whatever. That's just it. And I think if we just remember that, that we have the power to affect the people around us and we can affect their lives every day, go out there and do it. And I think the world will be a much better place. Resist the urge to argue on social media. Yeah, when you really stop and think about how many political opinions you're probably going to change when you dive in and argue about something, it's probably pretty low. I doubt anybody's really changing who they're going to vote for or is really swinging to the other side based on some stranger saying something on Twitter. Yeah, we see people who get sucked into it all the time. I mean, you've already mentioned it several times. When you put something out there, people are arguing with complete strangers about who's better, and they don't even have a cohesive argument. Just my candidate's better than your candidate. And so for people that get sucked into that, to just realize you're not changing anybody's opinion, you're just wasting your time and your energy. But I hear from so many people that say, well, I have to stand up for what I believe in, or this is about being strong. I don't want anybody to disrespect me. Again, you're not changing anyone's opinion. You're just wasting your own time. So that goes back to not giving away your power to some somebody on social media, I even mean, if it's a friend, family member, or a complete stranger. It's so true. And like, you have to make sure you don't rationalize staying on social media. Like you were just saying, like, I got to stand up for my opinion. Nobody you know is actually on social media, except other people who you regularly see on social media. Like most people you know are not on Twitter right then or not on, they're never going to see your tweets. They're never going to see your Facebook post. That's just the statistics of it. Exactly. And again, that goes back to looking at the facts. Well, just because you quote unquote stood up for yourself on Twitter by saying who you think you should vote for, or why you should vote a certain way. What good did that actually do? How many people in the world thought, oh, this complete stranger on Twitter said this. So this is what I'm going to do now, or I've completely changed my opinion. I guarantee that's not happening. You know, I've rationalized I did this a few weeks ago, but I, even a couple of years ago, a well-known famous author, I, I now remembering rationalized the same way. I rationalized the other day, like it was like one in the morning and I was, somebody was disagreeing with me, just like that cartoon. And Robin's like, when are you going to stop and go to sleep? And I'm like, as soon as I just, this is just sport for me. This is just fun. This is sport. So I'm arguing with this person for the next hour and I just feel like crap afterwards. So it wasn't really that fun. But I had rationalized. Right. And who hasn't gotten sucked into something at least once? I know I have too. And then, yeah, you think at the end, did I win? Like, what does winning look like? I tried to make the other person's arguments look silly or I, like, what's my ultimate goal in all of this? And uh, I've never ha seen anybody who walks away from a social media argument and says, oh, yeah, I feel so much better about my life now. And that was a really great use of my time. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, like a lot of times, you know, during I wake up in the morning and I get to my computer and I make sure my email, Twitter, Facebook, and so on, are, are those tabs are up. But sometimes it's really helpful to just 
hit the X on the Facebook, Twitter, and any social media platforms, and, and you realize you know, your whole day might go by and you don't look at them, and life's better those days. You could just shut it off, and then that whole little micro world that nobody you really know is on there is, is gone. I'm glad you say that too, that nobody you really know, because that's what I find is I don't, like my friends and family that I tend to talk to in real life, it's not like we're tweeting back and forth, but I think a lot of us get caught up in that idea that somehow you have to tweet or have to let everybody know what's going on. Nobody know, yeah. nobody notices if I'm not on social media for a day. Like, like, like change the people who respond. Like imagine that there's a list of people who most respond to your Facebook posts and your tweets but then also make the list of the 20 or even 30 people you care about the most. I bet you those lists don't even intersect. So you might see the same people over and over again on your tweets. And finally someone says, Oh, I'm never speaking to you again. Fine. You're not on my list of the 30 people I care about the most, even though I've seen you every day on my feed for years. That's a really powerful exercise. I like that. I think, think we should actually employ that. Me too. I'm going to start doing it. Uh, reach for healthy coping skills. What, what's that compared to the other things we've been talking about? It's just about knowing, well, how do you handle anxiety? How do you handle sadness? How do you handle fear? We all tend to have certain go-to coping strategies that we use, and it might be that you eat too much when you're nervous or that you reach for a drink when you want to relax or you uh, maybe call people to commiserate when you're uh, feeling bad about something. But you just want to know, well, what do I usually reach for? And is it helpful or not. A lot of our coping strategies give us a moment of instant relief, but then they introduce problems down the road. So you just want to say, well, is this actually healthy? Is it good for me? Things like yoga, meditation, deep breathing, exercise, just taking care of yourself in general can all help you feel better. And it doesn't necessarily create more problems in the long term. Spending time with loved ones, doing things that you enjoy, just making sure that you're taking steps to manage your emotions in a healthy way. Yeah. And this is related to your next item, number 10, taking care of yourself. Like what you said, even if you're what you use to cope, if you realize it's not working, figure out some other way to take care of yourself. And again, it could be sleeping or spending time with someone you love or doing something creative or helping someone else. I've had a lot of people come in my therapy office over the years and they'll say, I'm so stressed out. I can't eat and I can't sleep. Well, what's the solution to managing stress? Try to try to get eight hours of sleep, got to eat healthy. So we change your behavior first and then you feel better afterward. But so often we do it in the in the wrong order. You think I'm so overwhelmed. I don't have any time to do anything fun. I'll go do something fun and then you can be more productive down the road. Yeah. And I think, I think people try to think themselves out of sadness, but you have to do yourself out of sadness also. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes people think that positive thinking is the end all be all, but thinking more positively isn't going to change your life. You then have to do more positive things. Yeah. I'm going to go on here. Uh, number 11, change the channel in your brain. So this is one of my favorite ones. It's, it goes back to the thinking. To recognize when you're ruminating, when you're rehashing, when you're just dwelling on something negative, which again, all of those thoughts will make you feel bad. And the worse you feel, the more negative things you'll focus on. So to Ask yourself, am I problem solving or am I just ruminating? If you're trying to solve a problem, maybe thinking about it helps. Not always, though. There's no evidence that thinking about uh, a problem longer or harder will help you develop a better solution. But right. there's, and you know, like that's one of the reasons why I love your 10 ideas a day. Like, let's come up with a list of ideas, not just 
there isn't just one solution. But to recognize when you're not doing that, when you're just thinking, oh, I feel awful, this is horrible, terrible things are going to happen, that way of thinking isn't helpful. But we're not good at just changing the channel. If you tell yourself, don't think about that, you're actually going to think about it more. They do this in lots of social experiments when they have somebody say, think about white bears for 30 seconds. And then you say, don't think about white bears for the next 30 seconds. Well, obviously, all these little white bears are going to pop up in your head as you're trying not to think about something. And But then you give people an exercise. I do this when I give talks. Sometimes I'll give people a sort of a silly exercise, like write your name with your left hand or write the alphabet or hmm. see if you can go through the alphabet backwards. And at the end of that, I'll say, how many times did you think about white bears? Well, not at all, because I was really trying to focus on this other thing. So, And that's what changing a channel is. And you're probably not going to sit at home and say, I'm going to write my name with my left hand or my opposite hand. But maybe you say, I'm going to focus on this other task. I'm going to see how much cleaning I can do in the next five minutes, or I'm going to call a friend and talk about something completely different. I'm going to go outside and do something. Basically, you just want to get your brain unstuck from all of that negative thinking. But the best way to do that is to get up and go do something different. Even changing the room that you're in, changing the activity that you're doing can just get your brain focused on something else so that you start to feel better. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Like, you know, depending on what your hobbies are or habits, like for me, just taking a walk outside is enough to change my perspective on things. Also, if I if I'm solving a puzzle, uh, you, that kind of occupies a lot of brain cycles. If you're real, if you're trying to solve a, a a mildly difficult puzzle, not too difficult, not too easy, but it gets your brain going, and you, and it's hard to then remember. Oh, what was it? I was upset about again. Right. Um, and it also exercises your brain and that, or exercises your outdoor skills or whatever. Uh, schedule time to worry. I love this one. I do too. So I've used this one with countless people in my therapy office as well. For people that are kind of worry warts, they worry all the time. And you tell them not to worry. They're not going to suddenly shut that off. But if I prescribe to them, I want you to worry for 15 minutes a day and they put it in their calendar. They're going to worry for from 7 to 7.15 every night, and they actually go and worry for those 15 minutes, then their goal becomes when they worry outside of that time to just remind themselves, okay, I'm not going to worry right now. The worrying time is at 7 o'clock. And with practice, there's a lot of research behind this one, but I've seen it anecdotally with tons of people in my therapy office. With practice, they can contain their worrying to 15 minutes a day. So if we bring this back to the election, I think this could be super important because you're not going to change the election. You're not going to change who who won or who didn't win. But you might find that you really just want to think about it. And if you give yourself permission to think about it, but you decide I'm not going to think about it all day long, I'm just going to think about it during this one time frame, it can help you contain it so that you're not distracted by it all the time. Yeah, I so agree with this technique. Like when I was in different periods of going broke and losing all my money, I would be at three in the morning, I would wake up terrified and anxious and everything. But then I I would tell myself, I kind of realized this later on, I uh, and I started doing it, I would tell myself, you know what? I wake up at three in the morning anxious all the time, and but I need to sleep. So how about I promise myself at three in the afternoon instead of three in the morning, I'm gonna think about this and be anxious about it and let go and everything. But I'm going to just go back to sleep now because now I know I've scheduled. Nothing's going to change in 12 hours. I'm going to be anxious at three in the afternoon. And usually at three in the afternoon, I'm no longer anxious because I've been doing things to solve my issues and so on. 
Yeah, it's almost, I'm glad that you can recognize how it worked for you because it's almost like so many people in my therapy office felt like if they didn't worry at all, then something bad was going to happen. So they wanted to worry. I used to think that. Yeah. That was, it's an addiction. It's an overwhelming feeling that, no, I need to solve this problem. Yes. And so if we just gave them permission to say, okay, you can worry about that. We're just not going to let it happen all day. Look at people just feel like they're freer. Okay. As long as I can contain it, then I'll be okay. Yeah. I remember one time 18 years ago, uh, I was seeing a therapist and I was super anxious and I got so anxious in the middle of therapy. I was like, I have to call my broker and tell him something. I have to do it right now. Like that's how anxious I was. And she said, okay. And I did it. But then a week later, she said, you know, you're very persuasive because I got sucked into your anxiety and let you do something in the middle of your highest point of anxiety, which was probably not when you should be doing things anyway. And, but you got me, she wasn't quite being as accusatory as that. I'm just remembering it that way. But she basically said, I got sucked into your world of anxiety when you were supposed to be here and now. And I, 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 it reminded me, I have to be careful because sometimes I'm persuasive. And so I would persuade everyone around me to be just as anxious as me or I get upset. Interesting. Yeah, anxiety is a funny thing. It's like a wave. And when we get to the height of our anxiety, we'll do just about anything to feel better. That's why somebody, when they're calm, they can say, no, I don't do this or I'm okay. But once our anxiety reaches a certain peak, we'll probably reach for just about anything to get some instant relief. And that's when people learn to manage their anxiety, they often learn to sort of ride that wave and know, okay, I can handle being anxious. It will go, my anxiety will go back down eventually by itself. I don't have to do this thing. And sometimes it's reaching out for somebody for reassurance. Sometimes it's reaching for some sort of unhealthy coping strategy that gives you instant relief. Um, but once people get used to knowing that, okay, it's like exposure therapy that you get exposed to your anxiety to know that it won't kill you. Yeah. Well, that's interesting too. Like to, to kind of, it's almost like getting um, a vaccine for anxiety. Right. Thir number 13 in the 13 things mentally strong people do when their candidate loses, take positive action, which we referred to several times. And I love this, but tell me what, what you were thinking. It doesn't have to be anything huge. As we referenced earlier, it could just be you send a thank you note to somebody, third grade teacher that made an impact on you. Just do something kind for someone. Maybe you decide to get involved in politics and you raise money for your candidate for the next election or you decide you're going to do something, some sort of civic action that you're going to take. But it could also just be those small things of I'm going to be kind to my neighbor today. I'm going to reach out to someone I haven't talked to in a while and not talk about the election, just talk about something else. I'm going to compliment someone. I'm going to just do some sort of kind deed. Once you realize that you have some control over life, you have some control over how you behave, you feel better. Because what you don't want to do is fall into that trap of being helpless and hopeless. But when you do those little things for other people, it makes you feel like, okay, I have a purpose. I can do something. I can affect other people's lives. And when you feel more effective, your psychological well-being automatically improves. Yeah. And I, I want to go a couple different directions with this. One is, if again, if you send, if you come up with a list of ideas to help someone else, that just feels great. And you never know if it could turn into something huge for you. Like if you decide to work together on something or whatever. Another thing is your email page is like this huge treasure trove of exciting and surprising things you can do. Like, and I've talked about this before, but I like going back five, six, 10 years in my emails 
and hitting reply on an email as if it was, I got their email a second ago and just responding to it as if they had just sent me their email. So you surprise them and it's funny and who knows, it might re-engage some relationship or partnership or, or whatever. And that's easy. It's simple to do. It doesn't cost you any money. I'm sure everybody listening to your podcast has an email address and could make a huge difference in somebody's life. You could reach out to a stranger. You can go back and answer old emails. You can do whatever you want, but it's easy. It's quick. It's fast. It's simple, painless, uh, and can be a lot of fun. You never know what could come out of it. Yeah. And just, I mean, I kind of think the general thing is, oh, whenever you're whenever you need help, help others is the, is the saying. And, you know, that's always good. Like find someone to help. But, uh, you know, another creative thing I've been doing lately is, um, trying to think of one surprising thing I can do each day. Like I'm going to surprise at least one person a day with something. And that engages me for a while trying to think of what could be the surprising thing I do. And then there's the actual doing it. And it's just funny and surprising and, Fun. Oh, that sounds like a great goal for all of us to set, just something unexpected, right? I mean, every day seems like the same thing over and over again. And then not only did the other person benefit, but you get a boost out of it too. Yeah. And it could be something like really just stupid and dumb, like, and small, like, but like, you know, Rob and my wife's real, it's really easy for me to make her laugh. So last night she, she said, um, okay, I'm going to go up to sleep, you know, and I said, oh, I'll be up. I'm going to, I got to respond to some emails and this, uh, and read some stuff. I'll be up, you know, eventually. But instead I very quickly went up like a back stairs <laughs> and turned out all the lights and then pretended I was under the covers and asleep. And then she just walked in like maybe 10 seconds after that or 15 seconds after that and saw, saw me asleep, not expecting it all. Cause she thought I was like working and I, and usually I'm really serious when I, and say I'm going to be working. So she laughed and that was my surprise of the day. See, I love so, it. It's simple, fast, yeah. but makes life more fun. Yeah. And if you can do it twice a day, it's a big win. Right. So that's 13 things mentally strong people do when their candidate loses. And the qualifier is you might not be able to do all these all the time. So put this list up with Amy Morin's name right next to it on your wall, on every room of your house. And just try to remember some of these things because everybody's going to be disappointed. There's going to be a civil war after this election. So just deal with it and try to cope with it. Yeah, I think things will get ugly for a while, but I think if we can keep these things in perspective and just remember the earth is going to continue to rotate and we all have choices and we can move forward and stay as strong as possible. Yeah, you know, there's this um, political philosopher, uh, John Rawls, R-A-W-L-S, and he has a, a book called Political Liberalism. And he's not talking about liberals versus conservatives. He's, he's talking about just what is a good political system and and and, and basically democracies. Like, we're, you know, everybody says, oh, we're not a democracy. We're, a we're basically a democracy. But he, he basically says everybody in a good political system, it should be expected that they at least attempt to be rational and they attempt to be reasonable. And what he means by reasonable is what applies here is that in a reasonable political system, there's a, what he calls a plurality of voices, meaning there's multiple opinions and they all come together and they discuss them. And there is a system in place where consensus is reached and some people will be happy with that consensus. Some people won't be. And then you just move on until the next time 
there's supposed to be consensus. That is a reasonable system. And, and his contention was that's what the United States is. And that really is what the United States has been for, you know, however long, 230 years now. So, you know, and we've been through everything, civil war, world wars, depressions, more than one depression. It's 1837, 1929, there's been the great recession. There's all the issues this year. And we've really amazingly made it through it. Not great, not bad sometimes, sometimes better than others, but you know, we are, what's great is we're a reasonable system. And even when every election is the most important ever, and every election has been pretty much as polarizing as this one, almost, uh, uh, you know, we've made it through to the next election. Who knows if that happens this time, but it's at least happened every other time. Yeah. And I think just recalling that, okay, we've been through tough times before we can get through tough times again, can help keep things in better perspective. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you once again, Amy, next time you come on, I want to hear more about your, your podcast, 13 things Amy Morin has learned from her amazing podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about your podcast for a second. So it's called mentally strong people with Amy Morin. My title, by the way, if I was to name your podcast would be, are you mental? Question <laughs> mark <laughs> with Amy Morin. But I like your title as well. Thank and you. you've had on one of my favorite people in the world, Chris Voss, who was the How to Negotiate Better with FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss. You have what it's really like to go to therapy, which is a really important topic right now. Uh, uh, Lori Gottlieb, of course, has, has written about that. And, and it's obviously a topic that's important to most people because you know her book's been very popular as well. Okay, last thing. You did his podcast, the 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 Friday fix, the life hack to stop worrying so much. What was that? What was that life hack? That was the one about scheduling time to worry. Mm, I like it. I, I like that scheduling time. Oh, I'll tell you one more. I this is what I told my my daughter. Um, um, I won't say which one it is actually because she has recently started listening to my podcast. But I told my daughter once. She's I'm I'm an anxiety ridden person. Like I have to always deal with anxiety, and hence my daily practice and so on. But she's even more anxious than me. And and it comes up all the time. And this was like when she was six years old or seven years old, I said to her, look, let's try this. Next time you're really worried about something, tell me, I'll write it down word for word what you're worried about and do it. it you could come to me any time of the day, all day long, whatever. Just when, every time you're anxious about something different, I'll write it down. And then let's compare three months later uh, if it actually came true what it was you were worried about, just so you can see if the things you're anxious about are worth being anxious about. You kind of want, that's good data to know. And of course, nothing, zero of the things she was ever anxious about, zero, not even one, zero of the things she was anxious about ever happened. That's a great exercise because I think it just brings us back down to recognizing how many of the things we worry about are, are just so improbable. And once we can look at the facts and look at things a little more rationally, that can help us feel a little bit less anxious. Yeah. Well, Amy, once again, thank you for coming on to the podcast. And it's like the 80th time you've been on the podcast, but you always add incredible value every minute you're on. And I really appreciate it. And by the way, you could also listen to Amy's interview with me on the Are You Mental podcast, <laughs> my private name for it now. <laughs> oh, and thank you for coming to when I was performing in um, Tampa. Thank you for coming to my uh my comedy show at Side Splitters. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It was so good. You have come so far in comedy and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you.
Thanks again. 